I'd like for us today as we begin to look at the 93rd Psalm just for a few moments by way of preparing our hearts for prayer. Psalm 93, which speaks of the majesty of the Lord, reading that short little psalm. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lifted up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Father, as we come to you today, we do acknowledge that you are the Almighty One and you reign in perfect holiness. Holiness so pure and so bright that no one can look upon you and your throne through sinful eyes. O Father, we look forward to the day when we can stand in your presence and we know that the consuming fire of our God is a purifying fire and one that we can stand in the midst of unharmed, even as, the, as Daniel and the Hebrew young men stood in the fiery furnace along with the Son of God unharmed. And Father, we look forward to the day when all of the <clears throat> sin and evil of this world is gone and there is only holiness to pervade your kingdom and your universe. Lord, in the meantime, I pray that the glory of your light will shine in our lives in such a way that we will be purified in our daily walk, that our desires will be those that are formed by your spirit within us. Lord, I pray that as we study your word, it will open our hearts to the truth that we need to know, not just for knowledge's sake, but for the sake of a, of a right walk before you. Lord, we thank you for all the good things you have done. Uh, for these that have successfully completed study. And Lord, just pray now that you'll be glorified in them in the work you call them to do. And, and Lord, just be present with us now in this day in all that we focus our attention onto. In Christ's name, amen. In chapters 8 and 10 of 2 Samuel, we find a, a summary of the growth of the Davidic Empire. Now, what I have here is a minimal overhead. The outline here in red is the uh, outline of the Davidic Empire at its uh, height. And it would be transferred on to Solomon. So it becomes the Solomonic Empire as well. But as soon as Solomon dies and uh, Rehoboam takes over and, and there's a division because Jeroboam and Rehoboam split this empire, it begins to degenerate extremely rapidly. And not only does it fall back to sort of like almost the borders as small as those controlled by Saul, but even those are divided between two separate kingdoms. So really we're looking at the growth of Israel at its very greatest in all of history. We're looking at the point of time at the height of the Davidic Empire when more territory was under the control of Israel than has ever been so in any other time in course of history, including today. Chapter 8 and chapter 10 tell us the story uh, at least part of the story of, of the development of that empire. But right sandwiched in between chapter 8 and 10 is, is chapter 9. 
in which we have insight, further insight into the godly character of this man David. Again, I want to emphasize that so many of us are so familiar with David's failures that we forget to see David's successes. That scripture uh, does not gloss over the sin and failure of the heroes of the faith is, is quite evident from the stories that we've already studied and others that you well know of in scripture. You know the life of Abraham and his failures and the life of Isaac and Jacob and uh, I mean Jacob the founder of the nation whose name was how, how that man was was good at one point and bad at another point and of course you go down through the Old Testament we go into the New Testament we look at Peter and and we see so many individuals where their sins and their failures are made evident scripture reveals them but by the same token we find that the Bible also highlights the successes of God's people. It highlights their obedience. It highlights their godliness. And so in the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel, we see something of the godliness of David emphasized. For many years, many years before the time we're looking at here, David had made a covenant, a promise to Jonathan that he would show his loving kindness, David would show his loving kindness if he ever got to be king of Israel, to the house of Jonathan. Now the only person that knew that David had made that covenant with Jonathan was Jonathan, of, of course, and God. So when the time came and, and David had built up this great empire and he was ruler uh, of this nation and the Saulite house, the house of Saul, had largely been wiped out, he could have said, well, you know, that was long ago and, and it's too much trouble to try to find somebody in, in Saul or Jonathan's house to, to carry that out with. I'll, I'll just move on from here. No, he didn't do that. As soon as things settled down enough for him to, to, to be able to do what he wanted to do, he instantly begins to search for someone from the house of Saul that he can show loving kindness to because he had made this promise to Jonathan that he would do so. Why does he do this? It's not human nature to do these things. Uh, our human nature, you may have noticed, tends to be um, self-oriented, tends to be self-gratifying, tends to be self-defensive. Uh, rarely are we really the kind of people by our own human nature who wants to go out and bless others and love others and encourage others. That's the nature of God. And, and the Spirit of God, of course, dwelled upon David. And because God's Spirit dwelled upon David, David was impelled to fulfill his promise, to keep his covenant, which he had made. And therefore he searched. And he found not only a descendant of Saul, but a son of Jonathan that he could use as the object of his loving kindness. And he found that this young man, well, he probably wasn't so young anymore, uh, even though he was probably not terribly old. He was possibly in his 20s uh, at this particular time. He found him living somewhere right about over in here, a place called Lodibar, which is a little bit south of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit to the east of the Jordan River. Its exact location has not been identified, but that the signs point to, to that particular place. And he was living with a man by the name of Machir, and I talked about Machir last week. Machir was not a man who uh, was even of the tribe of Benjamin. He was of a different tribe. So what did he gain from harboring this fugitive? Remember last time, if you were here, I emphasized the fact that traditionally down through history, if 
a new dynasty comes to power and overthrows the previous dynasty, generally speaking, there's an attempt to eliminate all the members who might be a threat of the previous dynasty. So there would be no rallying point for those who didn't like the new rulers and wanted to bring back the old rulers. You couldn't because they're all dead. And I pointed out what happened to Nicholas, uh, the Tsar Nicholas of Russia, and you know that story. And so here he's harboring this man who was the son of Jonathan, meaning grandson of Saul, and therefore was the direct heir to the throne of the Saulite house. So he could have been perceived as a rallying point for those who favored Saul, particularly the house of Benjamin, and those who didn't like David. And certainly there were those who didn't like David. And so here is, is the situation. Machir is actually taking his life into his own hands by harboring this individual, or he could have been under normal circumstances. Without hesitation, David brings this young man, whose name is Mephibosheth, to Jerusalem. He orders him brought to Jerusalem. And you remember in the passage we read last week, the first part of chapter 9, uh, it says that he was fearful. He was fearful when he was being brought to Jerusalem. When he came before David, he just bowed and scraped and prostrated himself on the ground. Uh, groveling before David, hoping that David would have mercy on him and not kill him because he thought maybe David was bringing him to Jerusalem to execute him. Did Mephibosheth expect or earn the honor he received from David? <laughs> Clearly, no. He expected maybe to be killed. At the very last thing in his mind that he would be honored. He didn't, certainly he didn't know of the covenant that David had made with Jonathan because when Jonathan was killed, this boy was only five. And the covenant had been made years before that. So he would not have remembered the covenant even if his father had told him the covenant. And, and so he, he comes to Jerusalem with fear, trepidation, uh, not expecting honor. He was, therefore, the recipient of unmerited favor which, of course, is the common definition for grace. How much was Mephibosheth in his relationship to David much like we are in our relationship to God? We have no right to expect from God anything but judgment in our flesh. And yet, God, through Christ, has given us unmerited favor. And so, in many ways, we should have the, the, the sense in our hearts before God similar to that Mephibosheth had before David. You have given me this and I have not earned it. I am not worthy of it. You have given me this great honor to sit at the royal hat table and to be a royal prince. And, and, and that was what God has done. He has called us to become what? Holy people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. To enter into his presence. To sit at the, uh, uh, at, at the marriage feast of the Lamb as it were, because of his unmerited favor, because of his grace. And so this is sort of the feeling that Mephibosheth had as he stood before David. In so many ways, David prefigures Messiah. Of course, unlike Messiah, David was capable of grievous sin. And we will be seeing probably the most famous or notorious sin in David's life as we move into the 11th chapter of, of, of 2 Samuel. But David was a man of godly insight. He demonstrated this 
in many ways, not only in this uh, attitude and, and the fulfillment of this promise that he had made to Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, but also in so many of the Psalms. And as I was thinking about this, this particular Psalm came to my mind. So let me just turn to it for a moment. It's, it's a Psalm we all know so well and often refer to, particularly when we feel like we need to be reminded of God's grace, and that is Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, David says many things that help us to understand God's mercy towards us. Let me just read a few of the insights that, of course, David had as a result of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Beginning at verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And this is, of course, the loving kindness that David wanted to show to Mephibosheth. And he was unable to do that because God's Spirit dwelled within him. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He knows that from two perspectives. First of all, he created us from dust. And secondly, of course, Messiah walked in our frame. As for man, his days are like grass, as the flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its, pla its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. What better person in all of history can you think of to write such a psalm than David? Man who knew the highs of God's blessing and knew the lows of sinful degradation. And yet, in, in through it all, he would pray the prayer that we so often refer to in Psalm 51, Create in me, O Lord, a clean heart, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so it would be that David would be sort of a mirror of, well, back in the... Uh, 16th century, there was a woman by the name of Marguerite of Navarre, who was the, the queen of, of uh, the little kingdom of Navarre and sister of the king of France. And uh, she was very much a Protestant at a time when, of course, most of Europe was, uh, was Catholic, but the Reformation had to broken out. And she wrote a work called The Mirror of a Sinful Soul. The Mirror of a Sinful Soul. In which she describes her own pietistic search for for God and for, for God's salvation in, in her life. And in, in many ways, David is a powerful mirror of a sinful soul, you know, a man who, who can reflect, you know, everything really that we can experience in our life, David pretty much experienced. And, and yet through it all, he was triumphant, triumphant because of the Spirit of God who dwelled within him. And so are we as, as we trust in the Spirit and believe in him because His Spirit will not be departed from us if we are truly His children, despite our failures. So a, a godly man who has known great failure, as David did, 
could write these words with understanding and passion. And that's why we can read them with the same. Let's look on in the ninth chapter of, of 2 Samuel at verse 9. We studied the first part of the chapter last week. 2 Samuel 9, 9. Then the king called Saul's servant, Ziba, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your, son, and, and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet, as we have been told several times in, in the scripture. And of course, the reason for the emphasis uh, upon the disability of Mephibosheth was to emphasize the fact that he could not earn the favor of David. He had, didn't have the physical ability to be a, a warrior. Uh, for David. He didn't have the physical ability to even, even stand in the court and, and, and to serve as one of David's counselors because of his disability. Therefore, this makes the favor that he receives that much more unmerited and causes him to be that much more of a true image of who we are because we are all terribly disabled when it comes to trying to earn God's favor. We cannot do it. We have nothing within us that, by which we can earn God's favor. It's only by his mercy, just as it was David's mercy alone that elevated God through David, elevated Mephibosheth from, from living as, as, as a ward of somebody in some teeny little town in some corner of Israel, raised him from that and put him in the capital in, at the very royal table of David. In that day, you, you couldn't have gone, you couldn't have seen a greater uh, contrast for an individual, a greater rags to riches story you could not see. In order to make uh, good his promise to Mephibosheth, uh, David again summons this man Ziba. Now in the first part of the chapter, we were introduced to Ziba. Ziba was Saul's servant who was obviously maintaining Saul's property uh, in the absence of um, Saul. We're told in this passage that Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Now that tells us something about this man Ziba. He's not a kind of a servant like somebody, like a butler or a housemaid, you know. He's a very powerful individual. He's also very prolific. If he's got 15 sons, you know by law of averages, he's probably got somewhere a similar number of daughters. And then, of course, he has 20 servants who, um, who serve under him. So he's, he's been maintaining Saul's land in the area of Gibeah. Remembering, and I know you, you can't see it very well, but Gibeah is, is right here. So if you can kind of get the general picture here, here's uh, Jerusalem. So Gibeah is just a little ways north of Jerusalem. And Saul had an estate there, and this man, Ziba, is maintaining uh, Saul's estate. That estate should have gone to Jonathan, but Jonathan died alongside Saul. So theoretically, it should have gone to Jonathan's son, but Jonathan's son is off in the corner, and he is lame in both feet. The term Saul's servant here, if you look at it carefully, you'll discover that it, it, the, the formal meaning of the word is steward. 
or retainer. Now those are words that don't mean as much to us today, but if you think in medieval European terms, you begin to understand that steward and retainer, this was a far cry from a household servant. In fact, there were times when, for example, the state of Scotland was ruled by a steward because in the absence of a king, somebody was chosen to maintain the kingdom on behalf of the person who would become the next king or queen of Scotland. And even the word steward becomes Stuart, the royal house of Stuart, ultimately. Retainer. A retainer is somebody who, who is, uh, in many cases, a very powerful vassal who serves a lord and, and is honored by that lord, often with a great estate of his own. So we're not talking about uh, some lowly little servant here. We're talking about a man who is rather powerful. And he has taken over all of Saul's estates uh, for the time being. He's the keeper of the estates of Saul. Now, because Saul died tragically on Mount Gilboa in battle and his son died, all of his sons died with him there, except one who, who died later, if you, as you remember. The, 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 and, and the only grandson, apparently, as far as we know, the only grandson that could be identified is this man Mephibosheth, and, and he's crippled in both feet. Uh, so, so Saul's whole estate appears to be in sort of like legal limbo. limbo. Try to add a couple of other, you know, Larry and legal limbo. We try to put that all together and, and, and bend your tongue around it. I don't mean this Larry over here. I just tried to find an L word <laughs> to go with this. Yeah, I, I trust Larry's not in legal limbo. <laughs> Being seriously crippled in, in both feet, Mephibosheth had to have a powerful sponsor in order for him to be considered as the possible uh, one to inherit this, this great estate. I mean, the estate of a former king goes to somebody who's not able to really maintain it. This, this was not viewed as, as proper. You know, in our society, we rightly try to minister to those with various disabilities. But in history, that has not been so. In, you go down through the pages of history in the societies of the world, if you had a disability, you were, you were in bad shape. You, know? you were treated as an outcast. You, were, you had to barely scrape by on the edge of society, if at all. David became Mephibosheth's powerful sponsor. He commanded Ziba, Ziba, you will now take care of the estate of Saul on behalf of Mephibosheth. It is now his, and you are responsible to care for it with your 15 sons and your 20 servants. You, you will make it produce, and you will give the profit to Mephibosheth. Now, where was the profit going before this? We don't know. It doesn't say. Was it going into a blind trust? They probably didn't have, even have a concept of a blind trust in those days. Was Ziba skimming it? <laughs> Probably. We're later going to find he isn't exactly the most honest of characters. But whatever the case is, it is now going to go to Mephibosheth. Why? So that he will have his own source of income. Now, he's going to live as a royal prince. He's going to live, you know, around the throne of David. He's going to eat at the table of David, the royal table of David. So what does he need an income for? He needs an income for the same reason today we struggle mightily with this, this question of welfare in our society. How, how do we provide welfare for those who are in need without destroying them? 
And this is what David wanted. David wanted Mephibosheth to be able to stand or sit head high at the table of David, knowing that he is not a welfare recipient. He's not there just to eat at David's table because David had pity on him, but he, he was to be there with a man of self-esteem uh, self because he's self-sufficient. He has his own resources. He doesn't have to be at the table of David. He could be at his own table. And yet he is being honored by being at the table of David. And that's what David wanted everyone to see and Mephibosheth to know. That it's an honor to be here. It's not because I have pity on you and, and just want to toss you the dregs of my, my dinner. You are honored to be here because you are the son of Jonathan, who was my great friend. And by virtue of, of my love for Jonathan, I, I, I place that love upon you, Mephibosheth. So David was wise enough to know. I mean, David could have confiscated the estate. That, that almost always happens. When, when a, a new dynasty takes over, they confiscate the estates of the previous dynasty and add it to their own. And that's why royal estates got larger and larger and larger as you go down through time in, in many countries. You think about it today, the Queen of England, by virtue of being queen, possesses vast estates in England and Scotland and, and Wales. And, and that's been gathered, garnered, by the royal house down through time. But David does not do that. He gives it to Mephibosheth so that Mephibosheth can hold his head high while at the table of David. David is wise enough to know that this man will feel honored if he has self-esteem. Of course, in our society, we go bonkers over this self-esteem thing. In verse 12, we're told that Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Now, the name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? The descendants of Micah, however, are listed through ten generations in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 8. It's not until you get to the tenth generation where anything is said about them that makes them sound like anybody important. In the tenth generation, it says some of them were men of valor as archers. Otherwise, the generations go by and not a thing is said about them. But nevertheless, they are mentioned. As, as we look at the end, come to the end of this particular chapter, uh, verse 13, it says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. That sounds like finale, you know, period. That's the story of Mephibosheth. No longer do we hear about Mephibosheth. He passes off the scene. But as we're going to discover when we go a few chapters down in, in 2 Samuel, this is not so. Mephibosheth shows up again. And so does Ziba. And uh, in, in a way, they kind of serve to test the character of David a little bit more. It's interesting that uh, God never accepts us the way we are without choosing to make us more like his son. And so whenever we've gone through a trial and tribulation, we say, Whew, glad we made it through that now. Maybe we can just cruise on sunny, calm seas for a while. And God says, oh, you need another little storm here. And another one comes along. But I don't know how many times we've heard it, but I don't know how many times we need to hear it before we finally figure it out that it's only through storms that we grow. If it's too calm and too peaceful, we just sit back in our, uh, you know, sense of, oh, everything is, is great and uh, go downstream. So God says, I won't let that happen. I'm going to send another storm into your life. Thank you, Lord. 
Well, let's look at chapter 10, first five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 10. Now it happened afterward that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think that David is honoring your father because he sent counselors, consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants in order to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut their garments in the middle as far as their hips. Now, that's what it says in the NASB. The literal is butt, buttocks, <laughs> and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent, them, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. You know, I mean, how humiliating is it just to have half your shirt off? But when your backside's also dangling out, that's a little more humiliating. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. And of course, it doesn't say he also had put some clothes on. <laughs> Silly story, isn't it? Think about it. Why are people so stupid? <laughs> history would have, history would be really boring if it weren't for human stupidity. You know, because everything would just be going down nice and, you know, kingdoms would pass from father to son and, and uh, people would be living in, in, in the bright light of, of great kings and you know, everything would be wonderful. It really takes stupidity to jazz up history so that you can have wars and all the rest of the good things, you know. Well, we're looking forward to the day when, <laughs> when history will have a little less of that and a little bit more peace. And I think there are a lot of exciting things that can happen without stupidity playing the primary role. Since chapter 8 lists the Ammonites as having been subdued by David. Chapter 8, we're now in chapter 10. This chapter, I think, is describing how that subjugation occurred. How is it that the Ammonites became subjected to David? The Ammonites, you remember, had been partially pushed out of the land by, during the conquest by Joshua and, and the Israelites. But they continued to survive as as a kingdom over here, directly east of Israel proper here. Here's Ammon, you see, and Rabbah, which is their uh, capital city. You know today the capital of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan is Ammon, from Ammonite, really, its ultimate uh, origin. The Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew Lot by incest with his youngest daughter. Even though they're related to the Israelites, therefore, because obviously if Lot was Abraham's nephew and this is his son by his daughter, that's a pretty close relative to the tribe of Israel, to the sense of Abraham through Jacob. But they were as pagan as all the other surrounding nations. They were no closer to the God of Israel than were the Moabites or the Edomites or any of the otherites living in the area. This passage talks about a politically vulnerable period in the time of the history of Ammon. Because what you've got here is the transfer of the kingdom from a long-lived king to his son. 
Now think about it. Elizabeth of England has been on the throne for 50 years. Because of the longevity of her family, uh, she's probably going to be there a little while longer. And so when Charles takes over, he's going to be taking over as an old man after the long reign of his mother. So Nahash, whose name meant snake, by the way, Nahash has ruled for half a century or longer. And now the throne goes to his, we assume it's his son, you know, often son in Scripture can be descendant, might be his grandson, Who, whoever it is, it sounds like his son, Hanan, who had a more innocuous name, or actually a, a nice name. Hanan means favored, better than snake, I guess. So whenever you have a long-term ruler replaced by, by someone who is to succeed him, you have a time of instability political instability, because is this person going to be able to grab the reins and hold the power like his predecessor did? Is this person uh, going to have the personal strength and integrity of his predecessor? I mean, he's going to have to go through a trial period, and that trial period is a politically vulnerable, vulnerable period for, for a ruler. And so David, who is now the strongest ruler in the region, decides that he's going to show grace towards this man, Hanan, uh, help him through this transition by sending a delegation to him. Now, you, you will remember, most of you will remember, uh, some of you will remember by virtue of having heard about it by history, that in 1948, when Israel declared its independence, the United States instantly granted recognition of the state of Israel. I mean instantly. It was prearranged, of course. <coughs> so that the moment that Ben-Gurion, David Green, Ben-Gurion, declared the independence of Israel, Harry Truman granted recognition to the state of Israel. Well, that right away gave Israel a powerful start. The strongest nation in the world has recognized the right of Israel to exist. They had to fight, but nevertheless, they had that. So here is the strongest king in the region offering to Hanan congratulations, consolation. In effect, he's sending an official delegation, an official ambassadorship over there to, to, to uh, seal the relations between these two countries. That's what it really amounts to. He's not just sending over a bunch of psychologists to go over there and help him through his cry time. He probably wasn't crying. He was probably going, yippee, yippee, the guy's dead. I'm king now. This is an unsolicited goodwill gesture on the part of David. Just as David had blessed Mephibosheth because of his father Jonathan, so David is now going to bless Hanan because of his father Nahash. Now, of course, from what we know from Scripture, we're going to say, David, you're nuts. Nahash, the only thing we really know about Nahash was that he set, uh, laid siege to the city of Jabesh Gilead and, and told the people that if you want me to go away, you have to, you have to let me poke out all your right eyes. And you remember that's at the time that Saul had been anointed king, and that's when he won his spurs. He went over there and defeated Naash and drove him away. So the relationship between Israel and Ammon was, was iffy at best. So what is David saying? I want to do this because your father showed kindness to me. When did Nahash ever show kindness to David? You won't find it in Scripture. So what we have to assume is that Nahash served in a similar situation as Achish of Gath had done. That at some point in time, while David was fleeing from Saul, he
he had fled over to the region of the Ammonites and Nahash had taken him in and, and given him solace and, and provided him room and board, you might say, just as Achish did in Gath, because he, he looked upon uh, David as, as a common enemy with him against uh, Saul. This, of course, is speculation because Scripture doesn't say. But that seems to be the only logical explanation for why David would say because Nahash, Nahash was kind to him. Because Nahash was never kind to Israel in the pages of Scripture. So that's what we, I think, have to assume. Unfortunately, when Hanan got word of the delegation that David was sending from Jerusalem to Rabbah, uh, he listened to some of his princes. Now, later on in time, we're going to discover that listening to your advisor sometimes is not a good thing. Later on, when we get to the death of Solomon, we talk about Rehoboam. Rehoboam listens to his advisors, and, and the result is the kingdom of Israel is divided. Well, so it's, about, it's a similar situation here. The princes of Ammon cannot believe that David is sincere in really wanting to befriend and, and, and console Hanan. Instead, they, they say that uh, he's really sending this delegation over here as an opportunity for espionage. You know, they're all, you, you see on their backs, 007. <laughs> you know, so that's what they really are as a bunch of spies. So rather than accept this delegation with proper protocol, with proper honor, and therefore cementing good, friendly relationships with the most powerful king in the region, which would have been smart. But like I said, history is only exciting because of stupidity. And so Haman acts stupidly, or at least foolishly here, and decides to demonstrate his strength before his princes. I'll show you what I'm going to do here, you know. And, and so he chooses to humiliate David's ambassadors. He didn't have to humiliate them. He could have easily decided, if he really believed that they were going to be spies, he really believed his advisors, these our guys are coming over as spies, he could have done something a whole lot less provocative. He could have simply said, thanks for coming, but but I don't need any consolation, you guys can go home. And not allow him in the city. Or he could have just brought him in for a real quick, you know, real quick protocol thing. Oh, th thanks for coming. Uh, uh, bye. So long. Sent him out in an hour, you know. Any, any, either of those actions would have been less likely to have triggered a reaction on the part of David. David might have been a little offended. David might have thought, well, these Ammonites are not really being very gracious about all of this, but it might not have provoked war. But what can, they, what can they possibly think when they send the delegation back humiliated? I mean, these weren't peons that were sent out. Of, David didn't walk through the streets of Jerusalem and pick guys out of the gutter and say, go over there to Rabbah Ammon. He, princes of the land were sent. Royal ambassadors were sent. Uh, these were men of honor. And to be treated like this was absolutely foolish. A wiser course of action would have resulted probably in no retaliation whatsoever. But he's got to demonstrate his machismo. I'm a man, you know, and uh, I'm as good as Nahash ever was. And so he decides to wave the red flag in front of the angry bull. Well, smart move. Let me read you the words of commentator Ronald Youngblood about this. He's very explicit in this. He says, he begins, this is Haman, Hanan begins shaving off half of each man's beard, no doubt vertically, not horizontally, to make them look as foolish as possible. 
you know, half a mustache, half a beard, shave clean on this side, you know. Although voluntary shaving off one's beard was a traditional sign of mourning, forcible shaving was considered an insult and a sign of submission. Hanan then cuts off their garments in the middle of the buttocks and then sends them on their way. Forced exposure of the buttocks was a shameful practice inflicted on prisoners of war. See the implication? It's a very, very strong implication. Uh, I mean, it's like waving a red flag in front of an angry bull while your feet are attached in concrete and you've got no sword. While David's men were returning to Israel, word, of course, reached David of their humiliation. And so he sent messengers down to Jericho saying, you guys stay there in Jericho. Don't come up here. Stay in Jericho until you're, uh, certainly they had, once they gotten out of Ammonite territory, they'd done something to cover up their, their, their behinds. But the shaved beard thing was something you just can't, I don't think they had uh, false beards in those days, uh, except pharaohs in Egypt. And, and so they had to wait. For, you know, these, these weren't just nice little well-trimmed beards. They, you know, they grew beards way down here, you know, kind of like A.B. Simpson. And so uh, half of it is going to take a while before they could get it into some semblance of normal. And then, of course, they were to return to Jerusalem. So what is David going to do? Well, next week we'll look at verse 6 and uh, see what David decides to do.